The sermon I'm about to read to you this morning was prepared by Reverend Wes Bradenhoff. This sermon is the second of a series. The first was read by Brother DeHaan, and the next couple reading services will follow this series. The text for this morning is, can be found in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Mark 1, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After the sermon, uh, we will sing of of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 after the sermon. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, every Saturday our local paper has a large section called Working. If you're on the lookout for a new job, this is the one place you might look. There are often many requirements or prerequisites for many of the jobs listed, some of them quite specialized. Many of the ads also have a brief description of what the job involves, a so-called job description. In Holy Scripture, We also find a number of job descriptions. We can page through our Bibles and discover what being a king or a judge involved, or a prophet or a priest. But above all, we can also go through the Old Testament and find out what being the Messiah would involve. The Old Testament gives sort of a job description for the Messiah, the anointed one of God who would redeem his people. We find this especially in the prophets and especially with Isaiah. It's it's in passages like the one we read from Isaiah 42. He would be the one in whom God delights. He would bring forth justice. He would be a light for the Gentiles. He would open open blind eyes and bring freedom to captives. All of this and so much more. In Isaiah 50, we read about how this suffering servant, the Messiah of God, would humble himself before God and man. He would be obedient. Hundreds of years passed by, and finally the Messiah arrived. He knew his job description, and he was going to carry it out faithfully. In his mind, there was no question about what needed to be done. He knew that the Old Testament job description for the Messiah required a humbling. With his incarnation, birth, and youth, he had already set out on this path, no doubt, He'd heard that his relative John was in the desert at the Jordan River baptizing the people of God. He knew that he had to be there too. Jesus' descent into humiliation continues with his formal anointing and his entrance into his earthly ministry. As we explore all this today, 
we'll see that this also develops and impacts our earthly ministry as those who share his anointing. I preach to you God's word this morning with this theme, humbling himself, Christ enters into his earthly ministry. We'll consider his baptism, and then we'll consider his temptation. First, then we consider his baptism. Mark begins this section in a way that reminds us of the Old Testament. He uses the expression, at that time. These words are carefully chosen to emphasize that what's happening here is sacred history. Just like the history of the Old Testament, it's sacred. That means it has to do with God's grand redemptive plan. It's history. This really happened in space and time some 2,000 years ago. Then all of a sudden, the name Jesus appears again. His name was mentioned in verse 1 as part of the, of the book, uh, book title. But even there, the details are few. Verse 1 told us that he is a Christ, the Messiah. He is also the Son of God. But apart from that, Mark seems to take it for granted that his readers will know something about the incarnation and birth of the Savior. In Mark, the Holy Spirit wants to direct our attention right away to the most important period of the Savior's life. We're told that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Matthew mentions that he came from Galilee, but only Mark mentions his hometown of Nazareth. In the first verses of Mark, we heard about the crowds coming from the big centers in Palestine, Judea, and Jerusalem. Now, the Messiah appears, and we're told that he comes from Nowhereville. If Jesus hadn't come from, from there, Nazareth would be just one more forgotten small place in Palestine. If we put it in contemporary terms, it was like the crowds were all from Vancouver or Toronto, and Jesus was from Takla Landing, B.C., a little place not even on some maps. He had nothing to his name, no hometown credentials. He was just from a small town in Galilee, the Hick region of Palestine. Jesus' humble origins set the stage for what happens next. Again, Mark is very selective with the details he wants to emphasize. The other gospel writers fill us in on some of the back and forth between the Lord Jesus and John. But Mark just simply tells us he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And for his purpose, that is adequate. In fact, it speaks volumes. Again, looking back to the previous passage, you'll remember that this baptism of John was something that the Jews would have been familiar with. When Gentiles wanted to become followers of the Jewish religion, one of the things necessary was baptism. John, however, said that it was the Jews who needed to be baptized. They were dirty and unclean and therefore unprepared for the coming of Christ. Being baptized by John involved humbling yourself before God and your neighbor. Of course, by himself, the Lord Jesus was sinless and perfect. He was not dirty and unclean, but by being baptized by John, he was associating himself with the people who were there. He was identifying himself with their situation. He was humbling himself before God and his people. The divine God 
the divine Son of God, perfect and holy, took the baptism of John and in doing so pointed ahead to what he would do in his suffering and death, take on all the sins of the people and become sin for them. He humbled himself now and later. He would humble himself to the deepest shame and anguish imaginable, taking our sin, our shame, our hell. Brothers and sisters, look at the Lord Jesus in the water of the Jordan. Fix the eyes of your mind on him. It's a picture of Joshua passing through the river and bringing the people of God into the promised land. This is your Savior, and what a Savior he is. He became sin for you. He became what he was not, so that you would become what you are not. He became sin, so that you would be right, righteousness before God. His humbling at baptism pointed to his willingness to do that for you. His love for you, doesn't that fill you with praise, with love and thankfulness? Verse 10 tells us that Jesus was coming up out of the water. He saw heaven being open. Again, Mark is using Old Testament language and imagery. Specifically, he seems to be thinking of Ezekiel 1 verse 1, where Ezekiel saw the heavens opened and saw visions of God. The tearing open of the heavens means that this is divine revelation, something that has been previously hidden is about to be revealed and laid open for everyone to see and hear. Not everyone will necessarily believe it, but they will see and hear. The first thing that was seen was a spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. If you do a word study, you'll find that the dove has a number of con connotations or associations in the Bible. In the Song of Songs, for instance, doves are associated with love. Noah sent out the dove three times after the flood. Doves were part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Doves are symbolic of love, new life, creation or recreation, innocence and sacrifice. All these things seem to be bound up in this image. As an aside, in our mind's eye, we often think that this would have been a white dove. Perhaps that's because of the various artistic representations of the scene. However, the text does not tell us that the dove was white. In fact, most of the doves in Palestine were rock doves. These are your regular pigeons, the very same as we have around here. Very, very few of them are pure white. We think the image should be of a white dove, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. In fact, perhaps the ruddy gray iridescent rainbow appearance of a rock dove might even be more appropriate than white. It makes you think of the flood again. But that's an aside, and while it's worth thinking about, it's not critically important to the text. More important is the meaning and message of what was taking place there at the Jordan. Christ was being anointed with the Holy Spirit. We know that from Peter's words in Acts 10, 38, Peter says about this time, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Let's be clear about what happened here. It's not as if the Lord Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit before this moment. As the Son of God, 
he had union with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. At his anointing, it was publicly announced by God that this was the Messiah. This was Israel's prophet, priest, and king. Our prophet, priest, and king. Here was the one for whom John was preparing the way. Here was Israel's hope and expectation in the flesh. Not only that, but his anointing also signified the beginning of his earthly ministry. Just like presidents and prime ministers begin their rule with some sort of inauguration ceremony, it was the same here with the Lord Jesus. This was his inauguration. And we have union with him by faith and the working of the Holy Spirit. That means that we share in his anointing. Just as he is prophet, priest, and king, so are we. In the past, we've heard sermons on Lord's Day 12. We've heard about what that entails, the job description. And no doubt we'll hear about it again in the future. For now, just note that those three offices, prophet, priest, and king, are so essential to understanding who Christ is and what he does and who we are in him. In fact, as you read your Bible, as you try to understand what it means for your life, it's often helpful to think in terms of prophet, priest, and king. So for, for instance, when you're in the Old Testament, you might ask whether a given character is acting as prophet, priest, or king. How does he or she point to Christ, the perfect prophet, priest, and king? And then you develop what the text means for you and your life out of the fact that you are in Christ and have union with him. Our union with Christ is also significant as we consider verse 11. Not only was there the visual aspect, the image of the dove, there was also the voice heard, the voice of God. He said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Clearly, this was God the Father. He made this announcement so that the world would know that this is the Son of God, the Son of God who is loved and who pleases the Father. All those there at that moment would have heard that the relationship between the Father and the Son is defined by love. They would have heard that the Son in his humility and obedience is pleasing to his Father. This is understandable when we consider that the Son was taking on the authority that would propel him into his ministry, including his obedience, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. The son did not balk at this, at this and pleased the father. What happened to here is meaningful for us in at least three ways. First off, this is pure gospel. The good news here is that we have a perfect savior here is the one who can carry the load of our sin and guilt. Here is the one who will be perfectly obedient for us. Here is the one who can save like no other. He saves from the curse of sin and from the power of sin. So brothers and sisters, let us fix our eyes on him. Then in the second place, remember your union with this Savior. Because you're united to him, God also speaks these words in our text to you. He said it at your baptism, and he still says it today. Amazing, isn't it? Clinging to Christ in true faith, 
the almighty, holy God speaks to you. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Hear his voice to us today. We sin each day, but because we are in Christ, he loves us. He is pleased with us. We are accepted in the beloved. We may not always feel like this is the case, but the word of God stands true. Martin Luther had a little ditty about this. Of course, he wrote it in German, but somehow somebody made it sound good in English too. It goes something like this. Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. Luther struggled with doubts and questions and had to remind himself repeatedly to flee to the Christ and his word. Perhaps you have the same struggle. Don't trust your feelings. Don't build your faith on feelings. Trust Christ. Look to him and hear the voice of God to him and to you. You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. It is objectively true, whether you feel it or not. Oh, pure gospel, isn't it? So beautiful, so true. Believing what is going to impact our lives and our relationships, it cannot but, this is the third thing, when we are in Christ, God the Father speaks words of affirmation, love, and encouragement to us. How now shall we live? Wouldn't it be just natural for us to do the same with others? Think here especially of our children. How sad it is when you see families in the world who never affirm and encourage their children. How much more sad when you see families in the church who do the same, who never say I love you to their children. How sad, because they know the love of the Father in Christ, because they have heard him speak loving words. Families in the church should know better. Sometimes people have this strange idea that affirming and encouraging our children will make them fatheads that it will make them prideful if we praise them. Meanwhile, the exact opposite is true. We create a culture of pride when we do not encourage, support, and affirm one another. Because if no one else builds you up, you're going to be tempted to do it for yourself. And think again of Christ. He was more humble than we can fathom. Yet the Father affirmed him and encouraged him. And when you read his letters to the seven churches in the first three chapters of Revelation, you see the Son of God affirming and encouraging the churches where he can, just like his Father did with him in our text. Sure, there are also some necessary words of admonition, but nevertheless, there is also praise. So do we know better than God? Brothers and sisters, living out of our union with Christ, Let's make every opportunity we can to encourage, praise, and support one another. And let's especially do this with our children. Let's now move on and consider the second scene in our text. That, the te that of the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, compared to the other Gospels, Mark is unbelievably brief. The action moves right along. 
One moment, the Spirit is descending upon Jesus, and the next moment, right away, says Mark, the Spirit is sending him into the desert. Rather than fill in all the details from the other Gospels, let's take Mark at face value. What is the specific message that the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to us here at this place in Scripture? The desert figures significantly here. John was in the desert, and now Christ is sent out into the desert. As we heard some weeks ago, the desert was a place that Israel had to pass through on their way to the redemption in the promised land. That pattern is continued with Christ in our text. In some sense, Jesus is reenacting the exodus from Egypt. And as Israel was out in the desert, they were tempted and often failed. So Jesus is now out in the desert being tempted, and he does not fail. This raises the question of whether he could fail. Some say that because he is the Son of God, because he is God, it was impossible for him to give in to temptation. However, is it a true temptation if you cannot possibly give in to it? Isn't it then just an apparent temptation? Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every respect, just like we are, except without sin. For that to be meaningful, it had to be a real temptation. For his humiliation to be meaningful, it had to be a real temptation. In other words, he could have failed. He was really tempted, but unlike Israel, he did not give in. This gives us comfort because he, does, he really does know what we're experiencing when we're tempted. He knows what it is like to be drawn to lusts and desires of various sorts. He knows what it's like to have a demonic carrot dangling in front of your nose. You have a Savior who knows and understands. Moreover, you have a Savior who withstood the temptation and with his obedient cover, obedience covers for all the times that you have not. And being in him, you too will stand more and more as your sanctification progresses. Mark tells us that this scene took place over 40 days. That doesn't necessarily mean that he was tempted each day in 24 hours for 40 days. He was in the desert for 40 days. And during this time, he faced the temptations of Satan. Perhaps this was a 24-hour-a-day thing, but it would be too much to insist on it from the text. The point is, it was 40 days, and we find that this number more often in the Bible. It's usually connected with important events in the redemptive history. The rain fell for 40 days in the flood. The waters also subsided for this length of time. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. David and Solomon each reigned for 40 years, and so on. It was an, it's a number of fullness with respect to a variety of people and offices, prophets, priests, and kings. Therefore, it's, appro it's appropriate for Christ, the anointed one, to be in the desert for this period of time. A detail that's not found elsewhere in the Gospels is the mention of wild animals in verse 13. Why does the Spirit lead Mark to include this? There could be a connection here with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Christ, 
is the second Adam in the desert. The first Adam was tempted in the garden of comfort and safety. They didn't appear to be, there didn't appear to be any threats. All was lush and green and wonderful. Food was readily at hand. The second Adam was tempted in a scene of abandonment and danger, the very opposite of the first Adam. Perhaps that is what has been communicated with us in this detail. At any rate, we can see it as, as being indicative of the isolation of the Lord Jesus experienced in this temptation. Now, Mark doesn't really come out and tell us explicitly what the outcome was. It's like he expects us to know, either from elsewhere in the Bible or from what follows. We're expected to know that the Lord Jesus was victorious. His victory over Satan here was yet another battle in the war between the serpent and the woman. The war would be ultimately won at Golgotha. For, for now we see a whimpering Satan being robbed of his power and dominion. He cannot stop the conquering Christ. And after the battle is over, God shows his providential love and care by sending angels to minister to Christ. We're not told what exactly those angels did, but we can reasonably infer they, that they would have given some kind of nourishment to Christ. The angels were a sign that the Father still loved the Son and would care for him. For us today, we know the fullness of Christ's victory. Because of his victory, we are declared right before God and are made holy in God's eyes. And because of this victory, we are growing in holiness as we live our lives each day on this earth. As we live here, we can also be assured of God's love and care for us. He exercises that care in a number of ways, including angels. Some Christians have the idea that each believer has a guardian angel. The scriptural reality is far better. We have hosts of angels watching over each one of us. The angels are there to serve, not only to serve God, but to serve us. Think of what it says in Hebrews 1.14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The good news today includes the fact that God is caring for you through his angels, just as he cared for his son in the desert. Brothers and sisters, the baptism and temptation of our Savior were necessary steps in his humiliation, his work for us. When we reflect on these steps, watch what it does to your heart and life as you fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith. Watch how God will change you, mold you, and make you something new. The person God wants you to be, he will do it, and we will praise him for it now and forever. Amen.